Nothing in the universe can travel at the speed of light, they say, forgetful of the shadow speed. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England and the Netherlands, Matthew Russell and Julio Prayer. Oh yeah, baby, space. You're not. I, I hear you're not a fan of this uh, quote. I I have a hard time agreeing oh, I'm, I'm with that. But okay, nothing in the universe, nothing physical in the universe mm-hmm. with mass can travel at the speed of light. Because if you have any mass, you cannot reach the speed of light. Yeah. Well, what about a photon? Um, photon has no mass. It has no mass, but it has momentum. Isn't that weird? It's got momentum so you can do solar sailing. I still can't get my head around that. I'm, I'm no uh, no quantum <laughs> physicist. Yeah, I, I think if we get bogged down on this one, we're, we're never going to finish this podcast. It's a long one, and it's a super epic one as well. It's coming out on the 25th of September. Here's an interesting fact that ties in with this one, Julio, and you'll like this. In 1956 the first submarine transatlantic telephone cable was inaugurated, the TAT-1. Isn't that amazing that they laid a telephone cable all the way across the Atlantic from Europe to America? And you wonder how well, did they get a cable so long? <laughs> well, have you seen the ships and the, and the great big things that they had on the ships? It's amazing. Those pic- pictures of those are really Indeed. absolutely genius. Did you know that they... Uh, you you had submarines tasked with going and listening on those cables to get intelligence. They they still have these little submarine battles around the uh, internet cables that go across the Atlantic as well, where the Americans have to try and stop the Russians from cutting them and stuff like that. <laughs> There's all sorts sort of crazy shenanigans going down yeah. in the deep. And what happened even before that? Long long time ago. Ah. So Ole Christensen Roma, who is a Danish astronomer, 1676, made the first quantitative measurement of the speed of light, not the speed of shadows, you'll be pleased to hear, Julio. Uh, but tell me, if, if he was Danish, why, why did you say it as if, as if he was Italian? Yeah, Ole Christensen Roma, because back in uh, back in 1644 they spoke Italian in 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 Denmark. No, that's not that's not true. <laughs> it should so be more like <laughs> it should be Ole Christensen Roma. Oh, that's that, better. Is that that's better? better? Thanks. You have been watching Vikings. <laughs> I see. Ole Christensen Roma. Yeah, there we go. I, so <laughs> tell me, how did he measure? Oh, I love this. I love this. the speed of light. The, the crazy thing about the speed of light is it involves all the, all the best ever astronomers ever. Were. So you've got Galileo, who invented the whole system of looking at Jupiter's moons to work out what longitude you're at. So, so Galileo realized that you could, basically, the, the moons going around Jupiter work like clockwork. So you can use the moons of Jupiter as a form of clock. So Jupiter is the clock and, and, and the, the moon's going round like the hands of the clock. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you can, you can use it as a clock. And if you can use it as a clock, you can work out your longitude. And working out longitude is, was an absolute nightmare back in the day because when you were sailing, you, could, you had to do it by things like dead reckoning and all those kind of things, which were ridiculously inaccurate. And so that was the way that people did it all the way up to Harrison's Harrison making his 
clocks that if if you go to the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, you can go and see them. Anyway, yeah, a like a ama- amazing invention. But Cassini and Roma w- went out and tried to get some data so that people could use this method um, better. And Roma and Jean Picard, Picard, not the not the Enterprise captain, but. Um, Roma and Jean Picard went to Tycho Bray's observatory in Haven, which is like a little island, and Cassini, Cassini was in Paris, and they watched 140 orbits of Io and worked out the difference in longitude between Haven and Paris, which was pretty cool. Couldn't but they have used Google Maps? I, I'm not sure that I'm not sure they had Google Maps back then. I think it was the the abysmal <laughs> uh, Apple Maps. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, so it's right. wildly, wildly inaccurate. <laughs> yeah, no, you cannot measure anything with Apple. No, no, exactly. So they, 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 they did that, which was, which a was pretty cool. But Cassini, and this is the weird bit, Cassini realized that there was loads of discrepancies in the data, and Cassini realized that you could use that to work out the speed of light. But then, for some bizarre reason, he just abandoned that line of thinking, even though you'd think. That it's like, oh yeah, I've worked out this way of measuring the speed of light. I'm going to do it. He just, he just thought, oh maybe I'm wrong about that, and just forgot about it. But mm-hmm. Roma kind of ran with it, and um, the bit that he noticed, he was doing lots and lots of measurements, and um, and realized that as the Earth's moving away from Jupiter, you had different timings than when it was moving towards Jupiter, and so you have this brilliant thing that as by the time that Io's done its orbit, because you're further away, the light's taking slightly longer to get to you. So the, so the orbit will seem like it took longer when you're traveling away and will seem like it took shorter when you're traveling towards it. And using that discrepancy... But you know, you know the exact time that that orbit should take. Exactly. So you know exactly because it's like clockwork. It's, it, you've got this celestial clock up there. And then you can use mm-hmm. the discrepancy to work out the speed of light, which is... The first ever, but he didn't do it. The weird thing is, he he came up with the method and didn't bother working out the speed of light. So that was left to Christian Huygens, who went off and and nailed it. So Christian Huygens actually did the maths, and mm-hmm. uh, but Oli uh, Christensen Roma did the actual kind of method. So you could say it was Huygens that came up with the speed of light first. A reasonable, mm-hmm. a reasonable estimation. So he said two hundred twelve thousand kilometers a second, which isn't far off. What do you reckon the speed of light is in kilometers a second? I mean, I cannot recall exactly, but I would guess it's on the range of uh, two hundred and ninety-nine thousand seven hundred and ninety-two point four hundred and fifty-eight kilometers per second, give or take. Yeah, I reckon that that sounds about right. So he was he wasn't that far he wasn't that far off as a as a percentage. So, so yeah. 70% of the actual value. Yeah. So That's pretty good, isn't it? Uh, well, for the speed of light. Well, how come, I want to know is how come Oli Christensen Roma isn't more, yeah. <laughs> isn't more famous? How come he invented like the meridian circle, the alt azimuth, um, like tripod thing that you put <laughs> telescopes on and he invented the modern thermometer. What? <laughs> How come he's not more famous? Well, you know science is whoever publishes, right? Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Anyway, we, we've we rabbited on for at least seven minutes about the speed of light. But what we want to talk about is our guest. 
this is a this is a first, Julio. The first is a guest who's also astronaut of the week. First time that your astronaut of the week is your guest. Yeah, it it, it seems too much. It seems too much, but. Uh, as I texted you yesterday, I reckon we could do at least a hundred podcast episodes just on Kathy Sullivan alone. What do you reckon? We should make a separate podcast. <laughs> we should. We just should do the the Kathy Sullivan fan club pop, podcast. We haven't even scrapped a little bit of the surface of everything that yeah. she has done no. during the interview because we focus the interview on on uh, on her latest achievement. Uh, so maybe we should, maybe in, in advance of the interview, we, we can give a little bit of a of an introduction of, of what she has done throughout her career, which is it's it's, uh, it's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, well, like, pretty, <laughs> mind blowing, <laughs> incredible. What I like about it, it's a, a career, a stellar career that's been like literally a stellar career that's been driven by curiosity and all the right reasons. And the ambition comes from wanting to be the best rather than than wanting to show off. And exactly. And in many cases, you see that astronauts, when they were young, they did not, it was not in their career plan to become astronauts. Mm. It happened along the way. Exactly. Start from the beginning. Start from the beginning, Julio. So Kathy Sullivan, mm -hmm. astronaut and adventurer, explorer, and many other things. Uh, born in New Jersey in 1951. You know, she published a book not long ago. Yes. I don't remember exactly when it came out, but it's, it's called Handprints on, on, on Hubble. And if I remember correctly, she did part of her studies or even part of her young years in, in California. Right. She studied geology, art sciences uh, in Santa Cruz, California. Mm -hmm. That's in the early 1970s. But it's not what she went to study at no, all. No, she wanted to be a, a diplomat, right? Good at languages. I will let her tell the story. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I read the book as well. and All right, show off. No, but the, the level of detail on those books, you know, astronaut books tend to be very autobiographical. Mm. Okay, I was a kid, I went to school, I got married... I divorce, I like to fly planes. <laughs> this one is very much about uh, her own career and development and the, the development of the, of the Hubble Space Telescope. Not, not the comparison, but the, the book run, runs along these two lines. And the level of technical detail, the hands-on experience that, that she transmits through the book, on the level of the sort of tools they were designing to be able to maintain the Hubble, it's not something I I found it very refreshing to read that. So marks out of ten for the book. Uh, must read. A must read. Uh, yeah, it a does sound read. like a must read. Yeah, if you if you like anything about space, uh, especially the Hubble has been one of the most in, important space missions in the in the last couple of decades. It's completely changed the way we look at the universe, right? Mm -hmm. So to to get a little bit more of a backstage view on what went behind it, it was very, very educational. I found it super interesting. The bit that I that's unusual, I think, with her sort of journey into NASA is that she was totally academic up until joining NASA. For some reason, I thought she'd done like a bit of military service before joining NASA, but she hadn't at all. She was completely a sort of academic doing 
her PhD in uh, in geology and working for part of the uh, geological survey of the US. The one that was a space buff was uh, her brother that encouraged her to apply. Oh, that's interesting. And in fact, you're you're talking about the military career and she only signed up for the Navy Reserve later in her career. Yeah. While she was already an astronaut. Uh, yeah, so you, you can go read her PhD paper, The Structure and Evolution of Newfoundland Basin Offshore Eastern Canada. So, yeah. Another must read. Knowing Cathy Sullivan, it, it, it almost certainly is. What's inter- interesting, you, you mentioned that she came from a, an academic background uh, for this uh, selection of astronauts. Still the, the, the biggest recruit, recruitment wave they ever had. Yeah. And they referred to themselves as uh, the TFNG group. Which, which stood for what? TFNG meant the 35 new guys. Ah. It had the hidden meaning coming from the Air Force of the effing new guys. Ah. I mean, the list of people in that group. There's Dick Scobie for a start off. Judith Resnick. Sally Ride. Norman Thagard. Oh. Richard Mullane of Riding Rockets fame, Anna Fisher, of course. I just love the photos. If anyone can go to NASA Astronaut Group 8 on Wikipedia, just look at those photos. It, it almost looks like the 70s. It's so 80s. And they all have the NASA worm brought back into life recently. On the uh, side of the crew dragon. Yeah. So anyway, Kathy. Yeah. So she joins NASA January 1978, was officially an astronaut by 1979. One month after I was born. So at least you, you were born in the 70s. That makes me feel slightly better. Here's some of the things that she was doing before she was an astronaut. was software development, uh, launch and landing lead chase photographer. Which, do you know what that means? Is it you sit in a T-38 with a, with a DSLR and take pictures out the window? Yes. Is it? Of the of the landing. Well, I don't know if it's exactly that plane, but you're on a, on a on a jet fighter with your camera and she had to take photos of uh, the shuttles that were approaching for landing. One of the objectives of taking those photos uh, was to see the status of the thermal shield. Ah, right, yeah. And you have to be a very fast photographer if you think at what speeds these things are coming. Yeah. They they all seem to be pretty good photographers, particularly the pictures they take out of the cupola that they know how to handle a dslr don't they if you have the brains to know uh how to train to be an astronaut i'm pretty sure you can figure out how to handle a dslr are you saying that photography isn't rocket science (laughs) i or brain surgery i think we we need to ask our our friends trevor and john about that (laughs) yeah um uh yeah she did orbiter and cargo test and she did extravehicular activity and spacesuit support crew. She, she knew her spacesuits inside out. Not only that, but she took part in a, a lot of EVA training in the neutral buoyancy facility, so in the pool, which kind of connects as well with our little top theme of uh, sea and, and, and space for this series of of interviews. If you read interviews with her, and I don't know whether this comes up in the book, but she absolutely loves being in a spacesuit in the pool. Even though there's a funny story in the book, which the first time 
she had to do that. The suit was the wrong size. So it was too short on the, on the, between uh, your neck and your crotch. So when she stood up, the, the suit really <sighs> dug itself into uh, her uh, shoulders Ow. and um, the, how do you call this muscle in your neck? Uh, your neck muscle? Uh, uh, don't know. <laughs> that, that muscle that rugby players really grow. Anyway, oh, yeah, the yeah, ring really yeah, went there and, and, and she was in pain. And, and only when she got to the water, she could become, she could be more comfortable. Maybe, maybe there's a connection there why she liked to be in the space yeah, in yeah. the water. By the way, another terrifying, another terrifying story uh, she tells about doing a simulation, simulated EVA in a vacuum chamber. Whoa. When you do any other EVA tests, you have technicians around you. But if you're in the vacuum chamber and something happens, you are in really big danger. The vacuum chamber, the one thing I couldn't resist if I was in the vacuum chamber in a spacesuit is doing the dropping the hammer and a feather experiment. Yeah, but that's because you're so original. So, Matt, <laughs> uh, well, you were mentioning all the different tasks that uh, Kathy performed uh, while she was already an astronaut. We're talking about the mm -hmm. EVA support crew, spacesuit support crew. Mm -hmm. And she was also Capcom, capsule communicator, and the mission control for numerous shuttle missions. So um, the main point of contact, uh, talking to the astronauts on the mission, you also have a, a role with the families of those that are in, in orbit. You are that link. It's a very important job. If if you look at that list of jobs that she did, you realise that it, it it just exudes the fact that she's just one of these super professional people, right? No, obviously. But it's like a super safe pair of hands. It's like, who do you want as your backup? Uh, can I have Kathy, please? Because she's like the super safe pair of hands yeah. here. And of course, I would assume as well that all along the way they are being evaluated constantly. Um mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess those evaluations turn out positive for Kathy because she ended up flying not once, not twice, but three, three times. times. Three times. Yeah, three times. ST, let's, let's start. STS, I mean, because each of these flights are really important space shuttle missions as well. They're not like random missions. So STS-41. <laughs> what? Shuttle missions I know, I know. Missions. None of them are random, <laughs> random missions. Okay, let me rephrase it. These are space shuttle flights with actually almost proper iconic moments on them, I would okay. say. Okay, I, I, I see so, what you're starting, saying. But... Starting with STS-41, and the iconic moment for me on STS-41G was that it was the first beard in space. What do you think? <laughs> Not random. <laughs> it has the first beard in space. The Aussie Paul Scully Power. Okay. An Aust first Australian with a beard in space. Uh, weirdly, he was an oceanographer as well. So he was he he actually has a book written about him called Oceans to Orbit, the first Australian in space. But this was also the the first the this this Challenger flight was the first one with a crew of seven. Yeah, there there, there, there were better things than it being just the first beard in space. Well, for instance, uh, you you had <laughs> Sally Ride flying for the second time. You had the first Canadian. Yes. Mark Garneau. 
it was the commander was Bob Crippen. Legend. Le- absolute legend. But what, what's, what's really interesting about this flight is that this is a flight where Kathy became the first American woman to do a spacewalk. She was supposed to be the first woman to do a spacewalk, first woman full stop. And Sally Ride was supposed to be the first woman to go to space twice to show that it wasn't just a stunt, really, that Sally Ride was an astronaut on on an astronaut par with everyone else. This is the interesting bit, because you pointed this out, that that it was a a Russian... The Russians, as soon as they heard that Sally Ride was going into space and as soon as they heard that Cathy Sullivan was going to be the first uh, female spacewalk, they liked to keep the record so that the Russians instantly scrambled Svetlana Savitskaya, who'd been to space already, and they scrambled her to do a spacewalk, which is a little bit mean, but it turns out that Sally Ride and Cathy Sullivan had sort of, while walking down the corridor with people congratulating them, said, do you know what? I'm pretty certain that this is so far away, but by the time we actually come to do it, the Russians will have found someone to do it. So they they already knew that that's, the Russians would do something to kind of, <laughs> to actually take away the record. So they were fully prepared for that to happen and, and kind of had already second-guessed it. And but the, the, this is what this is what uh, Kathy Sullivan she says. She says you don't do the fourth mission worse than the first one just because it's not the first. It's a nonsensical proposition. And she didn't worry about the peanut gallery, is what she called it. Pragmatic person. But actually, we shouldn't take away from Svetlana because Svetlana is an. It, when you read about her, she's an, a total bang out and had her own barriers to get through in terms of sexism and everything They are else. all exceptional and professionals, like, okay? And yeah, the, oh, the game of it, politics played behind is not on them. It's no nothing bad for poor old Svetlana because she thoroughly deserved to do what she did in space because she's also a total bang I think bang she, out. she was welding in space. Welding in space, yeah, but that's the thing. She she didn't really, she even complained herself. She didn't really know why she was welding in space. So it kind of dove reek of, of the Russians just did it to get the record. And it's, you know, it's fairly obvious that that's the case. Okay, but let's talk about but, the uh, Cathy's EVA. Three hours. Yep. Three hours. But yeah. on what? Because this is coming more yeah, they, and more prevalent uh, and, and relevant today. They demonstrated yeah. that you could refuel a system in space. Yeah. Well, I mean, Eric Berger talked about this last week, didn't he? He was sort of saying about how, you know, this is a big thing now for SpaceX's orbital refueling. And they're just going to go and do it. They're going to try and do it. But it has been done. And this is perhaps the sort of biggest the biggest one. So yeah, the, o- the ORS. Sally Ride even had a little um, badge, the Orbital Refueling System <laughs> uh, insignia. First crew operated service station in sur- in space. So they saw it as a, a little service station, yeah. like a, a Texaco on the side of the road. It, it's huge for for yeah decades now. The, the, the all these ideas mm. of space propellant depots uh, or refueling to have multiple. To fly the same spaceship a couple of times to refuel in orbit, so that then you can enable the uh, the mission to the moon. So the fact that they demonstrated this in the shuttle flight, very important uh, milestone. In in fact, in fact, Matt, one interesting story out of this uh, mission 
You know, the, the refueling is done, uh, they are refueling hydrazine, mm -hmm. which is highly, highly toxic. Not nice. It's not nice. They have to take safety measures. And at all times, they have to have X number of layers of protection between the astronaut itself and the hydrazine. For safety, in case one of those barriers fails, you have more. But she gives you her the whole impression on, yes, on the one side, you need that safety, but at each extra layer of safety makes it harder to do the actual task at hand, refueling. And she goes a lot as well into the design of tools for EVA. Yeah. It, it, in, in her career, I think she influenced a lot the tools for used for EVAs that are even being used today at the space station. She even mentions some of those tools that they designed with this team uh, and the, the feedback with the astronauts and such, and how some of those tools are still today used in the space station. Yeah, I've, I've only ever got really up close with those tools at the buoyancy lab when we met in Germany that time. As they're sort because of, they they sort of lay them out outside of the pool to have a look at it was really 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 cool. I love all those things like the way that the hammers work with they've got some kind of ball bearings ball bearings inside <laughs> so that you feel like it's more like a hammer and stuff like that. It's 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 amazing, isn't it? That kind of frictionless. And, and, and you can see you you can see how probably IKEA has taken note. Yeah, of astronaut tools yeah. because in in the design of these tools to repair or maintain uh, Hubble and the space station, they always have concerns of having the 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 least number of tools possible that can do the most number of jobs. Mm. My my favorite bit of the ORS, this orbital refueling system, is that it's inside the the shuttle bay itself. You go, they went to the toolbox at the back. In the toolbox is this hydrazine pump. That then they've got to attach to a a fake satellite, a kind of simulated satellite, and hook it in. But yeah, it's it's then they then they have to retreat back inside, and that whole maneuver takes three hours to do. It's not like a sort of short maneuver of of just jumping over to the toolbox and getting it all out. But the uh, the equipment is mounted on a thing called the MPS M P E S the Mission Peculiar. It, experiment support structure mm, nice you know as engineers and our acronyms yep <laughs> so yes so they had to get inside before they then operate the actual hydrazine um transfer from within the vehicle we're back inside the safety of the space shuttle because it's that bad and the, the whole timing uh, hydrazine of, yes yeah hydrazine and the whole timing of that that spacewalk was quite strict as well because because they had to switch off certain instruments while they were outside, like radar and stuff like that. And and all that data that they were missing then is really annoying. So there was lots of people, so there was a lot of time pressure of you've got to go and do it because all the time you're out there, we're we're losing data on our radar experiment. And you just think how many things are going on on a space shuttle at any one time. The planning the operations uh, of a shuttle mission must have been quite a challenge. And the, uh, the other thing that she mentions is, is the slight difference between doing a spacewalk and doing it in the pool. 
and some things that you don't think about. And the one that I really liked was that it was Leastma who went out with Sullivan to do this to do this EVA. And there's this kind of clamshell type thing that's kind of opens up presumably as part of this tool that 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 goes into the um, artificial satellite. But obviously they'd use this in the pool and they've used all the equipment in the pool. But but when you're in space, all the hinges on things are frictionless. Whereas in the pool, obviously, it's quite the opposite. That there's loads of friction going on, and so this 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 clam thing is just like opening and closing nonstop on Listmer's hand, and they thought it was really funny because, of course, everything looks slightly odd because it's not in an environment that you're used to. And I think that's like, yeah, it's really you can do all the training in the world, but the actual reality is once you're out of the space craft and in in this environment it's completely new and you can't really simulate it anywhere of course there is no perfect analog and we have come as close as we can with this uh with these big pools of water where we can simulate evas but that's nothing i mean it's as close as we can get but once once uh, you are doing uh, an eva you are learning new things all the time that was uh, STS-41G. It was Challenger, by the way. It was Challenger's sixth flight. But then she went up a few years later, STS-31, which was Discovery, the space shuttle Discovery. So we, we, we worked out that Cathy Sullivan has flown on three out of the five space-worthy shuttles. Yeah. So the 35th shuttle mission, this one is epic, isn't it? The launch of Hubble Space Telescope. That even beats the first beard in space. Barely. Barely. Hubble is the most famous telescope, certainly the most famous space telescope. But I think it's the most famous telescope. And if, if this is if this is not the most important shuttle mission, at least for the scientific community, it, it should rank pretty high. Should rank pretty think? high up there with that and the launch of Chandra, I suppose. And it's it's an epic flight, and it's got Bolden on his second flight, Shriver on his second flight, McCandless on his second flight, Sullivan on a second flight, and Hawley on his third. So uh, that that is that's a pretty cool crew. And, and if you if you look at this at uh, this lineup, yeah. It's a dream team. It's, it, that is a pretty much a dream team. And the photos of the launch are epic because it's one of the launches where there's two shuttles on the pads. But here's, here's, here's the most amazing. Have you been watching Away on Netflix at all? I have not. You haven't seen it? I no. I, I Should I? Yeah, I think you should. You know what? I watched the first episode and was, and, and was a little bit annoyed by it. But by the time I got to the end, as long as you can kind of put your space nerdery away for a bit, because there'll be bits of it that will really grind your gears. Um, I... It, it's actually good. It's actually really good, and there's some there's some really excellent bit. There's some really good bits in it that I think are really well done. Yeah, there's so many bits in it that you think actually, yeah, Mission to Mars would be absolutely horrendous. But um, yeah, that you know, I'm I'm more of a the expanse kind of guy. Yeah, no, no, this is this is this is worthwhile watching. I think, but in okay. in in the in the program that they they as they set off, um. The one of the solar panels doesn't unfurl properly, so Hilary Swank's character has to go out with the Russian and fix it, and that's almost exactly what Catherine Sullivan had to do 
uh, with McCandless and go out and and actually physically go out and unfurl Hubble's um, solar arrays. And they were they'd, they'd got so far as actually sitting in the decompression chamber, uh, uh, doing their pre-breathing, so they don't get the bends, presumably. Uh, doing the pre-breathing um, in in a partially sort of depressurized um, airlock, so they were almost going out to do that exact maneuver. So I wonder if the people who made a way were thinking of that particular maneuver when they uh, wrote that part in. But it's it's um so that's so Sullivan almost had a second spacewalk there, but <laughs> like to the point Is of she... being like minutes away from having to do it. Well, they 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 were at the airlock, right? Yeah ready to jump out in case and it was needed and actually um, fixed the finally hubble. i think they fixed this issue with the the deployment of the solar panels uh, via software they overrode some sensors and and they managed but she was there at the airlock which brings me back i'm sort of like the expanse kind of guy no spoilers. Lots of airlocks in the in the expanse. <laughs> so of course, when when I when I read this part of her experience, there brings me back. Um, and yes, that you are in your spacesuit, one door away from just being in space. Yeah. On the one side, you must want to jump oh, out. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. You must want to to go, but you have to be there in case of. She uh, was. Uh, at the airlock, thus she was not able to see the Hubble deployment. So they they don't have windows in the airlock, do they? Her crewmates, they don't have. No. They didn't have. A, I don't know. I guess they didn't have a window. So uh, her maybe they had a window. It was pointing in another direction. But she mentioned in the book that she could not see the the actual deployment live. Oh, oh yeah, that's that's a, that's a, that, <laughs> well, that's really annoying. It's kind of ironic because you are one of the closest people to the item. And everyone in the world can probably see it live. Your crewmates can see it live. But you can't. But you're there. Yeah. I mean, that presumably those sort of spacewalks, EVAs, are considered insanely dangerous because presumably they haven't trained much for it. As in, they can't have just like done every single scenario of, oh, let's train if the, if the, if the solar panels don't open. Let's go and do a spacewalk. So it would have been a pretty ad hoc spacewalk presumably well i don't know if they would have trained specifically for this scenario but i mean obviously they trained for space i would assume they the i would assume they they had a long list of scenarios yeah. on planning this mission and deployment of solar panels should be one of them yeah i would assume they even had they they had to practice some scenarios in which they had a leak um on, on, on a leak of fuel on the shuttle in case they could not reach the the desired orbit, and they had to practice scenarios in in, in which they had to leave Hubble, wherever it was, and and to be able to come back to a lower orbit, because you know um, the the orbit where you deploy Hubble is quite higher where, than where the ISS is, and it would really stretch the mission capabilities of the shuttle. It was a big compromise yeah. between what the shuttle can do on one side and how high you want to put the, the Hubble. Because obviously the the, uh, the scientists would like it as high as possible to minimize interference from the planet. Mm. Well, it's if you think if you think about it now for the James Webb, it will be 
put in a Lagrange yeah. orbit. Oh, yeah. But, but, it, but it isn't, doesn't it do all its unfurling while in low Earth orbit? So I think it does a lot of what it has to do in low... But I st- it, it's still, if it doesn't go to planets, like, uh, yeah, the James Webb has to be the most stressful launch of all time. I mean, Hubble was stressful but, enough. But this... this the, yeah, but you will have, for James Webb, you will, you will have no one in the airlock waiting for jumping out in case of... No. So it has to it work. It has to work, yeah. And the this one was... Discovery uh, flew the highest of any shuttle at that point as well. And so it was going much higher than it would normally go. And as a result, when it's coming back in, it had the longest insertion burn as well. So it's obviously a very dangerous mission, that one, for a, for a, for the space shuttle. This is a type of mission that was stretching the shuttle yeah. capabilities to the max. Yeah, can't let that flight go without mentioning mentioning the detailed secondary object 469. Do you know what that is? <laughs> it's Please enlighten me. It's... I've got obsessed with these really creepy objects that they have on space shuttle and international space shuttle flights, where you sort of open a open a closet and there's this like head or or full body, and they're these radiation experiments. And this one actually contained a female skull, an actual female human skull, uh, and it's and it's it's cut into lots and lots of layers with lots of radiation um, uh, detectors buried all the way through so that they could see how radiation gets into your head, basically. So even after you die, there's a chance that you still might get to go to space as a skull experiment. If I told you this was the um, the skull of some famous scientist that was reused to test radiation <laughs> levels in space. It'd be so weird if it was a famous scientist. Oh yeah, and then they flew Einstein's skull up as a <laughs> Well, but okay, radiation. <laughs> oh no, I know who it could be. Marie Curie's skull. Marie Curie. <laughs> no way. Imagine if you could fly her skull uh, to do this sort of experiment. Oh my god, it'd be amazing. But presumably it's already been <laughs> damaged by radiation. But what the splash of uh yeah, that- Public for public relations, that would be. Yeah, it just somehow seems a little bit weird. The kind of spooky skull. I mean, have you seen this object? It it, it does look really spooky. The fact that it's all it's a head sliced. It's really, really, really something off a horror movie. So where is detailed secondary objective four nine sixty nine right now? I think it must have got taken apart so that they could look at all the different. I think we, we have to thing. ask we have we have to ask our audience if they can do some detective listeners work out here. there tell tell us where where whose skull it is and where it's ended up. Anyway, we were just talking about the deployment of one of the most important spacecraft in the history of science. <laughs> we got we got got sidetracked by um, by skulls. Yeah, yeah. But now, uh, but then. This was Cathy's second uh, mission. But then you have the third, third one on STS-45 oh. Atlantis. So, now, the great thing about this one is it's a personal favourite because STS-45 Atlantis, so the third shuttle that she's um, flown on. So that's featuring Bolden again. But three people on this flight have been on the podcast, which I think is pretty awesome. So Mike Fole, who, had be- who was becoming on that flight the first British-born man to go into space. Then you had Dirk Freemuth, 
the first Belgian to go to space. And uh, it flew up mm -hmm. with Space Lab, which I would think Space Lab has to be the European Space Agency's probably most complicated and largest project ever. Uh, on the one side, on the one side, you can say that, but uh, I think bigger and more complicated than those projects. You, we have many. Uh, you can talk about Columbus. Oh, okay. Well, let, let me rephrase it. Let me rephrase it then. Space Lab was an enormous project and perhaps the most important. A landmark. A yeah, one of the most important. Yeah. All of what came after. Because it, it inspired the PLM, the P, the MPLMs, the multi-purpose logistic modules that are named after Ninja Turtles like Raffaello and, <laughs> and all that, Donatello. The and then you've got the ATVs the and the Cygnus okay. and the Columbus Harmony and Tranquility modules are all uh, really based on the technology that was developed for Space Lab and, and all the Space Lab missions. There's lots and lots of Space Lab missions, like at least 23 Space Lab missions that, that went up as part of the shuttle program in exchange for astronaut flights. Like I said, certainly, certainly a major project and a, and, and a landmark at that. Yeah, after reading about, it, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I, I really don't know enough about Space Lab. I, I need to do an, an, a full episode on Space Lab, so we need to find a Space Lab guest. We need to find someone who's who knows about the program who we can get on and and go, and go through Space Lab because that that's a that's an episode and a half right there. How about someone who flew on a shuttle mission that? <laughs> well yeah you had three podcast guests we could have three but we could get dirk we could get that dirk kathy and mike lab. back on <laughs> and get get the whole crew of sts 45 back on panel yeah <laughs> as a little pan well zoom, zoom reunions are, are all the rage these days yeah right? absolutely all these tv shows that that have the whole the whole crew coming back for a zoom meeting we should have an sts 45 yeah. reunion zoom meeting. You, it's like it's like a sort of Bands that just play one album from their career. It's like that, isn't it? It's like astronauts just talking about the STS-45. So that Lab. Space Lab mission was, was yeah, it's, again, like super, super important science mission. So it was, um, I know that Mike Fole was firing electrons back into the Earth and creating the first man-made aurora because I saw his little uh, talk on that. But yeah, it was lots and lots of experiments, mm -hmm. and and apparently it's it's like one of the most important missions ever in terms of understanding the atmosphere and the uh, uh, and climate. You know, the uh, sort of the data that was cab uh, that was gathered on that mission was apparently really really important. Just rattle <laughs> through some of the things she's done since being an astronaut. And when I say rattle through, it's like what, the, what even if she wasn't an astronaut, her career afterwards is essentially ridiculous as well that's 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 the thing it's never ending being an astronaut was just the beginning and if you look at what comes after and if we go quickly through it it's almost like an insult yeah. right <laughs> yeah I'm... if 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 now we being an astronaut was just the beginning if you think of all of what she did after after her astronaut career she was appointed as chief scientist for noaa the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I mean, th that in itself is would would be a, a lifetime achievement of a lot of 
people just just that one one position in but indeed and and for this noah appointment first of all you know who was the f- previous chief scientist oh my god no who was it sylvia earl who is uh one of the most preeminent and influential figures for oceanography research a pioneer and sylvia is the one that suggested to have Kathy as her successor. Wow. But another important part, uh, another important fact of this appointment was that her nomination process started in a Republican, uh, under a Republican presidency. During that time, uh, Bill Clinton was, was elected. Her career just speaks for itself so much that it's someone that, even though was initially appointed by Republicans, she was finally uh, appointed by Democrats, going completely uh, across the whole political spectrum of the US, which, okay, right now we know it's a minefield, but I guess back in the day, they were much better at working with each other, right? Yeah, so she, so she went from Bush to Clinton to Bush to Obama, right? <laughs> Under all, all those different administrations, yeah. working at various science institutions under those administrations. Yeah, I mean that's that's I mean that in itself is phenomenal. Isn't but this it? yeah. is the sort of people this is the sort of people that move the world. It's such yeah. an in- integrity that they can work with any yeah. political party because they will just be accepted by any political party uh well from up yeah. to Obama I would say. CEO of Cozy Columbus, which is a science center in Ohio, director of Ohio State University, Center for Mathematics and Science. Then, then, then on the National Science Board for President George Bush. 2004. Elected three-term as the chair of the section on general interest in science and engineering for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And appointed by President Obama to serve as Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Environmental Observation and Prediction, and Deputy Administrator for NOAA, again. She was an acting administrator and then became the Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and the NOAA administration herself. And NOAA, together with NASA, are two of the the two most important civil agencies uh, for related to space topics uh, in the US. And so we were talking about this this mission, she was flying together with Charlie Bolden on the mission, and then they both ended up being on, yeah. on each side, oh, yeah. one of uh, administrator of NASA and, and the other one administrator of NOAA. Yeah. And at a, at a time, not, not just that, at a time where climate change has become like the biggest sort of political issue and, and of course, NOAA and NASA, are the, <laughs> their data is forms the backbone of the IPCC and all those kind of things. So just hugely, hugely important, the work Influential. The, yeah, that, 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 they, that, that Bolden and, and Sullivan were doing at that point, man. It's absolutely incredible. And then 2019, actually, uh, interesting, yeah, she gets a job 2017, which was a sort of competitive job to, to be the, uh, a, a fellowship at the National Air and Space Museum. And, and, presumably a lot of the time she was there she was researching everything about hubble for her book handprints on hubble that she released in 2019 so that's why she that book is so detailed and so expansive on hubble 
I'm assuming. No, like, like I said, that, that, that book really is uh, so much information, so much concrete. For engineers, it's, it's amazing. And then two of the biggest achievements have been done in this year, Julio. First one, being the first woman to reach the Marianas Trench, the, the lowest, deepest known point of the ocean. And this time, no Russians got down there before her. <laughs> And uh, so, yes, yeah, so, she's, so she's the first person to travel to Challenger Deep and to space, which is pretty epic. And we haven't even got to her, her, her biggest achievement in life, which we're about to hear now. Julio, <laughs> we've, we've chatted for far too long. Here is, the, the, this is it. This is, this is where it was all leading up to. This is all these years, all these years of career, and, and just just to reach this point, this interview. So I, I'm going to say those fateful words. Akute. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. We're joined on the podcast by an, a, a space legend, where we're going to have to say it, Cathy uh, uh, Sullivan. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Cathy. Hey, great to be with you, Matt. This is part of a series where we're, where Julio has joined as guest host and and we're trying to delve into the connection between exploration in space and exploration in 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 the ocean and how they're connected and and all the different ways that they're connected. So, as you were growing up, what what kind of skill set do you think that you had in, that you felt inside of yourself that that led you to become the first American woman to do a spacewalk for one and and led you to do all these things like um, the Challenger Deep Deep mission as well. Well, what my strongest memory of growing up is uh, really centers on being probably about nine to 13 years old. Uh, and those years line up with the earliest space program, both the Soviet and the U.S. program. Uh, but also, it was sort of a heyday for, or it was imagined to be a heyday, for deep-sea exploration and, and even deep-sea habitation. So, you know, Jacques Cousteau's television show is on regularly. Uh, there were there were dreams of uh, underwater habitats, I mean, substantial ones, small towns where people would live for a long, long time. One was called Con Shelf 3 for, con you know, Continental Shelf 3. So I, I've got a number of years of my life where you know every one of the weekly magazines would have you know one page after the next to spread about astronauts and then spread about these undersea imaginings and on TV shows same thing. Um, I think I even before that clearly had an adventurous and inquisitive streak. Uh, was always a very active child. I wanted to be physically out doing things, not just making imaginary games. I did my share of imaginary games and dolls and things like that, but they were nowhere near as interesting to me as, you know, going outside, trying things from, you know, can I learn to throw a ball to, you know, all sorts of little, little kid adventures. So I think really the driving force that's propelled me is a combination of those two things. It was not, it was never about pursuing a particular label or job title but it was about trying to find some way that I wanted to have a life that was as full of inquisitiveness and adventure as these lives I was reading about and seeing on television. Um, yeah, I'm growing up in suburban Los Angeles with a fairly typical pair of parents 
an engineer dad who just puts on a shirt and tie and drives down the road in the morning, comes back in the evening. Now, in between, unbeknownst to me, he's designing all sorts of super cool rocket things and you know, <laughs> being very imaginative. But to a 10-year-old, that does not look very imaginative. That looks like a, you know all too routine a day. And uh, clearly, I was inspired to try to find uh, an alternative pattern to life by whatever means possible. Yeah, so you weren't inspired by the engineering. You were more inspired by the the, the, the exploration side of things. I, yeah, I guess I would say that, although the how things work bit, how did they figure that out part, was very much front of mind as well. Um, you know, one other influence I recall that had a, a big impact on my first idea about how, how do you actually make such a life happen uh, at, at quite a young age, I'm guessing around 12 or 13, I read James Michener's Caravans. And, you know, that's a that's a diplomat it posted in Afghanistan. So it's a very, in that sense, a very different kind of exploration than what Cousteau was doing or the early astronauts were doing. But still, it was being in an exotic place and encountering landscapes and cultures and animals and climates that were, you know, fascinating and mysterious and, fig- and figuring them out. I mean, not just going there to buy a postcard and take a picture or two, but but really being immersed in them, living in them and coming to understand them. And then you know, I was I had just finished high school weeks before when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. So I've been focusing my studies on foreign language because the caravan story gave me a hint that, you know, foreign service might be one way you do this. Uh, and I've got a flair for languages. So that's the first theory, right? Bank on the language talent and figure it out from there. Uh, but I remember watching intently uh, the the televised bits of the lunar landing and listening to Buzz Aldrin calling out the altitude and forward speed for Neil as he flies the eagle down uh, to the to the lunar surface. And hearing Buzz, you, you have to really listen closely on the tapes to hear this. It's almost a little aside. But I hear him say, contact light. And in this flash of insight, I realize, holy cow, these guys put a curb feeler most of your listeners won't even know what a curve feeler is, but I'm old enough I do. They put a curve feeler on this thing. So when there's something sticking down, that when it actually physically touches the lunar surface, it turns on a little light. So that now they know for sure how high they are off the moon. I thought, A, I've, it was sort of a how cool is that? And B, was this real delight that little 17-year-old me, who's been mainly studying languages for several years, could so quickly flash through to an insight about how they had made that happen. And that, you know, it tickled me to figure that out. And so both of those instincts have always sort of interacted in driving me forward. You, you went on to do a PhD in geology, is that right? Yeah. What was, what, was the, what was the thinking behind that? Well, the first thinking behind that was a command from my undergraduate university that since I thought I was going to major in languages, I was required to take three science courses during my first year. And, I, you know, I looked through the university catalog and had this long list of fascinating classes I wanted to take that left no room whatsoever for three natural science classes. So I, I argued heartily against that. And to my everlasting good fortune, lost all the arguments. <laughs> uh, so one of those was a marine biology class. I don't think the professor can't have been even 10 years older than those of us in the class. Very dynamic, very passionate, and always had us out of the shoreline, you know, 
tide pooling and looking at critters and you know learning by doing rather than just learning by reading. Uh, and he did not use a textbook, actually. He used more of a, a travel memoir written by Sir Alistair Hardy when he was 26 years old. He sailed off from England on the Royal Research Ship Discovery for a big, long expedition in the Southern Ocean to figure out what was the ecology that supported the great whale fisheries of the day. But the book he wrote about that whole experience is, you know, it's partly a coming-of-age story. It's partly a travel log. It's partly uh, the adventure of trying to do science at sea. It, it was all of those things together. And I, you know, I ran through that and just swallowed it whole. I thought, yeah, that's what I was looking for. And then the other one that caught my attention was a, a broader look at everything of oceanography from waves and tides and currents to the chemistry and the geology. Uh, and that, that one was coming at just the end of my first year. And so I realized I was, I was so entranced by both of those ocean courses. I, you know, I really, I really had to think about this. I mean, I had nothing had engaged me as thoroughly and de delightedly uh, as languages had until that came along. And so now I'm, well, I thought I knew which way I was going, but you know, what, what is this stuff? Did I, is this going to be my favorite hobby forever? Or this, this actually looks like just the kind of lifestyle I had in mind. And so I mustered the courage to march up to my oceanography prof one day who also was not much more than maybe 10 years older than we were. Uh, and then I, I did not put the question very intelligently. It has to be said, I think it was something along the lines of, this has really been fascinating. And so was that other class. And I'm not quite sure what to make of it. What do you guys actually do? I mean, you know, be, being an oceanographer meant lecturing freshmen. I knew that part, but you know, what do you, what do you guys actually do? Uh, and happily, instead of you know, dismissing me out of hand as a stupid little French major that ought to just get back to the other side of the campus, he invited me up to his lab and spent most of a Saturday fielding one naive question after another, always with, I mean, he, he heard, he responded to the curiosity and interest underneath the stupid question rather than embarrassing me over how stupid the question was. Uh, and just, you know, pulled out maps and pulled out microscopes and pulled out, you know, whatever he could to, sh to show me uh, how you do this stuff and what it was like. And then as we were finishing up, he had gave me suggestion of a class I could take the next, uh, the next term that was more substantive than these introductory courses and would be, uh, you know, a good proof point. If you can, if you can do well in that class and, and enjoy it sort of, then, you know, you could be on the right track. And, I think if I had not gotten over that hurdle, then I probably would have been the lifelong amateur geologist, turned it into my travel passion, not not my career. If I hear if I hear this, uh, it seems like geology and oceanography were very much your main interest at this point. How does that interest eventually translate into the space part? Of the an your life? short answer is via via expedition and operation skills. Because, uh, I mean, my fascination was always about, became quickly the planet and how it works. I'm still fascinated by that. Um, but what made the connection possible was the fact that by the time I was finishing graduate school, I'd spent a fair amount of time at sea. I'd been an in integral part of planning and equipping and carrying out expeditions far away from land. So, you know, that's all moving much more slowly than a spaceship, but it's got many of the same 
planning challenges, equipment challenges, you know, knowing how the equipment works because there's not some other repair squad out there. It's you. Uh, you guys are going to equip it. You're going to plan it. You're going to design it. You're going to operate it. You're going to react to weather and breakdowns as they come along and, and adapt to keep going and, and get as much of the original plan done as possible, given the cards that Mother Nature deals you. Uh, so those things, that, that skill set carries over very well uh, to the spaceflight arena. And it was the part of oceanography I came to love the most, was the being at sea and the doing work at sea. So when I learned of NASA's uh, search for space shuttle astronauts and, and made the parallel of an ocean research ship to shuttle as a research ship, that's what persuaded me that you know I, I had the kind of skills that uh, could could really make a difference there and could be applicable there. And then it sort of go all the way back to those early interests, even as far back as the early earliest space missions, you know, the dazzling views of the Earth that astronauts brought back that were all over Life magazine and all those other publications. Uh, I've now become entranced and fascinated with how the Earth works. And gosh, if you beat all the odds and somehow get become one of the lucky few out of the very many that get selected, you'd actually get to see that view with your own eyes instead of looking at someone else's pictures. How can you not apply? They, you know, the odds are only zero if you don't try. Yeah. When you applied, did you have to persuade anyone at NASA the connection between what you'd been doing and what you were asking to do at, as an astronaut? I, I think the answer to that is really is not really because the way the selection process works, I and mean, they in that round they got something just shy of nine thousand applications at the start, and they winnowed those down to two hundred that they were going to interview intensively. But that winnowing process was all done entirely on on your paper records, basically. Your your and I don't even, I don't think we even submitted a resume per se um, for that, but your college and graduate transcripts, so a work history that you, you populated a government form for that. It was not, you know, send in your own cleverly formatted resume kind of thing. So I, I, it has to be the case that NASA made that judgment themselves with some confidence because I made it into the group of 200 to even be interviewed. So I, I think that was a, a parallel that they recognized and considered valid in their own right. I would just add that, you know, when they're when they're looking at candidates that have come up through the military, whatever field you're in in the military, it's a very rigid promotion system. You get when you're eligible for the next rank, you get looked at twice and in some batch of people that are all eligible. And if you get passed over, if you don't make the next grade in those two times, you leave the service. So you've if someone's standing before you with the rank of of major in an armed force, they've, you know, they've been rigorously selected to even get that far. There's really not any kind of parallel, similarly um, rigorous winnowing out factor in civilian life. I mean, some people might whiz through graduate school in four or five years, and some people can linger in graduate school for ten, and at the end they have the same piece of paper, and so you. Yeah, I think the kind of operational experience that I had in the real world, out at sea in the North Atlantic, you you know that's a demanding set of circumstances, and and if a person succeeded in that real world setting, or in an operating room, or an emergency room, there's certain kind of form, certain lines of work, certain activities that are unyielding 
And if you've got like someone who's a candidate who has succeeded in those unyielding circumstances, they've kind of been, you know, they've been proof tested or fire tested in a pretty reliable way. I think that's, that's probably, I mean, it's how we looked at it when we were talking about candidates uh, later on when I was on the inside and talking about new batches of contenders. Yeah. So when, when you actually got to start preparing for your space shuttle missions, did it turn out how you thought? Did you, did you, was the experience that you'd gained work out as though it was parallel to, to, to the space shuttle missions? And so you felt really prepared from them. Yeah, I mean, I had some very relevant experience, and I started to see and, and confirm my confidence in that uh, even before the specific training for my first flight, because you know you're, we're right away getting into small jets, for example, and you know flying off to different engineering um, locations or just for basic training hops. And I'd also grown up around small airplanes, so you know that was not some alien thing to me some confusing new skill i had to learn i i knew how to fly a flight plans i knew how to think through fuel margins i knew how to do the calculations um again these were now in much faster airplanes than i had ever flown in growing up but you know the dna was the same kathy actually matt and i had a bit of a conversation before the interview and we had this question we thought has to be uh, there has to be a story behind that. Uh, of course, you 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 did your EVA. Uh, you you were the the first uh, the first American woman to to do an EVA, and and of course you you heard uh, recently that there was an all female EVA done recently from the space station. And Matt and I were discussing that uh, only few of these spacesuits were ever built, yes. right? So we were wondering if. What happened to your spacesuit? Is this spacesuit, was it tailor-made for you or was it used down the line? Was it even in this latest? Was it used still yeah, today? Yeah, so the, the American spacesuit that's in use currently is, is, think of it as a pieces and parts spacesuit. It's not tailored to each individual spacewalker. Instead, you know, they looked at the, you know, the anthropometric measurements, the body, the limb length and shoulder width and all that of a whole space spectrum of population uh, and said, look, if, if we want to be able to fit any human being from the fifth percentile small end to the 95th percentile large, you know, how, what's the range of variation in how long their lower arm is and their upper arm and the, what's the shoulder width and the, you know, the waist to the hip to knee length and knee to ankle length. And so the suit is assembled out of segments of all those different types uh, and so they measure you, each individual, and then they go to that matrix basically and say, so for Kathy Sullivan with her height, you know, this you know, upper arm segment 2.3 is the right one, and then lower arm, you know, A, B, C, D. And they sort of tinker toy your suit together. Uh, and the backpack is uh, just like when you hike, it's basically a frame that mounts to the back of the suit, and then all the pumps and fans and things and tankage that keeps you going is inside that backpack. So all the pieces and parts, uh, uh, the only bit that's tailored to, to each individual are the gloves so that you get the best possible finger dexterity. So of all the pieces in the suit that I wore, the gloves are in the Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum. All the other bits were recycled and put back into the inventory. And at this stage, most of them have probably aged out as the materials in them, you know, become friable and begin to break it, 
break down and degrade. Um, the, the backpack that I wore had a serial number 1003. And as, as it turns out, that serial number backpack was aboard space station uh, when Christina Cook and Jessica Meyer went out on their spacewalk. And I think it was Christina that, that had it on her back. Wow. I did. I, I, I was right. right. You were right. Julia. I, I did not carve my initials in it. <laughs> That, that's it. See, it's incredible. Yeah. I, so yeah. So bits of your spacesuit just keep going out, and presumably that 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 could have gone out with Tim Peake or or, or yeah. anyone doing a spacewalk. Well, I, I don't know if Tim did his spacewalk in the American or the Russian suit because both suits are still in I, use I'm up there. Pretty certain. Yeah, I did it in a in a, an American one. Yeah, I think so. Okay, I think so too. <laughs> You've done your space shuttle missions. I mean, I, I, we, I, we could spend at least three or four different interviews with your with the, with the space <laughs> shuttle missions, obviously. <laughs> but let's 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 chat about the um, what you've done recently. This 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 dive down the Challenger Deep dive. Is it, is was there a lot of parallels between what you'd done before and 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 this bit of exploration? Yeah, the the big parallel between uh, my space experience and the challenger deep dive um is just the, the parallel of the of being inside an engineered capsule or, or environment that in which you feel very comfortable i mean it's a little cozy it's not super roomy but you know essentially a shirt sleeve environment very comfortable and outside that window or that viewport is an environment, a fascinating environment that you know is absolutely lethal, uh, and except for the craft that you're sitting in. And I've always found that there's sort of a dissonant, cognitive dissonance to that that is always, you know, I always marvel at it. It seems magical to be able to sit somewhere and feel so at home, feel so comfortable, feel so, you know, calm and not really worried if it, you know you know it's all that's all back of mind you just, i'm there i'm comfortable i'm fascinated by what's outside the window and somewhere in the back of my mind i keep remembering how could it feel so normal to be somewhere that's so extraordinary uh and feel safe and comfortable right here where i am knowing that just a few inches on the other side of this transparent bit is an environment that would kill me in an instant and it's it's like but for me that's what it is it's uh this this delightful calm fascinated feeling uh looking through like a magic looking glass or i guess it's you know i guess the other parallel is you know the kids book the magic school bus you know here you are in this extraordinary place inside of you know an all too familiar school bus yeah okay you know when you when you look out the window which which one is which one is more black uh, well, if you look out, if you're orbiting the Earth uh, and you look out the window, most most of the time that's going to be a window that's facing the Earth, uh, and that's partly for temperature control on the window seals. By the way, that's uh, why the shuttle would often fly with its tail pointing downward because you, Earth, the temperature radiating off the Earth is a pretty nice benign seventy degrees. So. It, it insulates, protects the vehicle from the otherwise wild swings in temperature from the sunlit to the dark side of the earth. Um, so you, you've got this on the sunlit side of the earth, you've got this glorious about a thousand mile field of view in any direction. And on the nighttime, nighttime side of the earth, you've got 
you know, physically the same field of view, but whether you see anything will depend on where you are. If you're out over in the middle of the Pacific Oceans, it's just going to be, you know, black below you unless there's strong moonlight glistening off clouds. Uh, if you're over a continent somewhere, you'll see, you know, the continent sprinkled with the diamonds of the city lights and, you know, you trace out rivers and trace out towns and play, you know, play the, the where in the world are you game at night. Um, when you go deep into the sea, you know, anywhere below you know, about 300 meters, maybe, uh, you know, there are no photons. The only photons you've got are whatever ones you're providing via the lights on your submarine. So your thousand mile field of view up in space shrinks to probably something on the order of 30 feet, 10 meters uh, underwater. Yeah. It's more like, what you know, not quite looking through a soda straw, but it's looking through a pretty uh, narrow field of view. I don't suppose when you look out of the the International Space Station window, you ever get a surprise. But presumably, when you're down in a submarine, you 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 do get to see surprising things. It, it how does what what's better? What's better at looking out of a submarine window or looking or, or are they a both ridiculous experience? They're both pretty ridiculous experiences, and just in such different ways. I mean. Yeah, there are a lot of reasons that you're unlikely to see a big surprise looking out a spacecraft window. You know, people have been flying in space for, what is it now, 60 years. Um, you've seen photos other people have taken. You've probably talked to crewmates who've flown before you. So you've got a lot of ways to build a sense of what you expect to see and what things will look like. And, you know, the, one of the great magical discoveries looking out the window uh, is, and it strikes everyone uh, on their first experience, so it is. You know, gosh, it looks like the maps. You know, so you you would think a spacecraft full of PhDs would never say, "Golly, you is look at that! It looks just like the map." But that's that will almost always be what someone says. Um, except you know, India is not pink, but other than that, it looks just like the maps. Um, but in the deep sea, you know, so not only so few people people have been there, so few. Instrument packages have been there, so so few observations have been made. Uh, especially, uh, I mean, both of the topography and the geologic landforms and and the living creatures of the ocean. That you know, how could you not be surprised? It's especially going as deep as the Challenger Deep. Uh, I would bet. I mean, there's now been 13 people uh, dive to the bottom of the Challenger Deep, so it's only just gone higher than the number that have walked on the moon. But I would bet there's, I would be surprised if there are 100 people on Earth beyond that number that have even seen a picture of, with any, any kind of resolution of a picture of the Challenger Deep or seen a bathymetric map that's not just, you know, gee, here's the ocean, here's the deep sea arc, but actually sort of the local scale topography of the Challenger Deep. And by the way, that's never been mapped to anything like the clarity that we have maps of the moon or of Mars. So you haven't had super good maps to look at and get a general sense of the topography. There's not been dozens of people go down there and there's not been, you know, there, there've been more, well, probably not quite, I was going to say more planetary probes to sent to Mars than there have been uh, automated probes sent to the Challenger deep. That, um, that'd be good to look up and check that. That could be just about true. So uh, you're, you 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 have to be surprised. It's it's much more of a first human experience in the Challenger Deep than it is for any of us nowadays, considering space. 
I certainly have heard uh, this before in which we know more about space than the bottom of our oceans. We certainly have mapped the surface of the moon and Mars better than we have mapped the floor of our own ocean. Um, and I mean, I, I think the statement also we know more about is, is a true one as well, because the key thing, to, the really crucial thing to understand about the ocean is its, its ecological structure and the life forms of the ocean. And, you know, we we know what's there only to the degree that we've bumped into one and seen them. So there are countless critters that there are places we've essentially never really gone and looked. Uh, there's scales of life from the bacterial and microbacterial on up to large creatures. Um, so, yeah, and we have, act, for all of the accumulated knowledge of 100 years plus of oceanographic research, uh, it's hard still to not discover some new critter almost anywhere you go looking in the deep sea. So what do you think we need to do to even the odds between this difference between space and ocean knowledge? Well, if we could wave a magic wand and change physics, it would help because it's easier <laughs> to you know, work with electromagnetic radiation through atmospheres or the vacuum of space than to work with acoustic energy through seawater. Uh, I mean, it, 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 it's harder. It's, from a technical and engineering point of view, it, it's harder to gain access to and make observations in the ocean than it is to do of a, a planetary surface from a spacecraft. Um, what, you know, what I think could be a game changer is that it's a confluence of technologies if we, if, if we capitalize really strategically on them, could make a difference. And uh, one is miniaturization, uh, is making it possible to make you know, meaningful, powerful sensors in smaller and smaller packages and, and smaller and smaller um, platforms to carry them on. So it's already, I mean, it's already the case that we can make certain measurements, mainly even the physics of the ocean, with um, small craft that are, you know, six to eight feet long, that are quite pre-programmed, but otherwise quite autonomous and inexpensive enough, you can have them out in the sea by the thousands. That still undersamples the ocean, but thousands is better than a couple of tens of research ships. Uh, and so continue that trend, uh, adding more autonomy and intelligence to the vehicles and smaller sensors. We've got to, we've got to get that sensing capability into the biological and chemical realm as well. And, and that is harder, but it can they're promising technologies that could do that. Like, a technique called eDNA, which I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a geologist shorthand of what this amounts to, but it amounts to being able to take a, a sip of seawater, analyze the DNA it contains, and thereby know uh, to, to, good, to good resolution what all critters are in that ocean area. So right now, if we want to understand the biology wow. of a part of the ocean, we have to go look. If I, if I saw a whale, there is a whale there. If I saw a tuna, there is a tuna there. If I didn't see one, you know, who knows? But this eDNA technique is it stands for environmental DNA, and it means you're getting sort of an ambient sample, uh, an ambient, you're, you're getting a life assessment or life inventory, a biological inventory based on the ambient DNA in fairly small samples of water. So if you can make those really small, and then if, if you can start to operate in swarms and flotillas instead of one by the eaches. 
and then finally, you know, the, the other the other couple of challenges are how do I get the data off that clever little autonomous platform? Because again, salt water is not as friendly as air for doing this. Uh, and I'd love to keep the thing out there for a really long time. How do I continually power it? So they're beginning to be some operating models that include uh, base stations uh, that are, may, can be connected to a surface buoy so you can run a data link up through there. Um, gar- undersea garages, basically waypoints that these things could recharge. Um, so you need to figure out that the data and the uh, power systems, those are you know, kind of limiting factors, uh, some of the limiting factors at the moment. And, and then finally, there's a, there's a sociological piece of this because oceanography thus far has operated in an artisanal way. So each laboratory or university or, and even the small companies, they'll make their autonomous robot with their data format and, and you know, every, everything uh, you know, hand done, very bespoke uh, and, and all too unique to that one effort. So if the four of us each threw a thousand buoys and gliders out into the ocean, but we each just kind of did our own thing, we would not have a 4,000 pixel understanding of the ocean. We would have three, we would have four 1,000 pixel. Hmm. It's like, you know, trying to build one jigsaw puzzle instead of each of us getting a thousand pieces of our own jigsaw puzzle. So, you know, how do where the vision of what this is is a, a richly networked ocean that is always on. There's always data coming from the ocean, uh, physical, chemical, biological data, and and it's networked. The it, it connects. It, it's sort of designed in an API mindset, so everything connects with everything else, as opposed to every little project goes into its own data bucket. It, it does ring a bell a lot with the with these recent developments in in space with the mega constellations. Yeah, in a way, with all these sensors constantly feeding information on all the time. Oh, yeah, I was thinking of interferometerism and and yeah, using different dishes to to make one giant telescope. And, that's, and that. that's that's kind of the way to think. It's a it's, you know that's a synthetic aperture, right? You yeah. you've synthesized a an antenna size that doesn't really exist. And to get that, it, everybody has to be on this exactly the same precise time standard, same data, same calibration. I mean, there's got there's a, a standardization that lets it all add up to, to more than the eaches. Uh, that's yet to happen in oceanography. Presumably, there's a lot of there's a lot of satellites, Earth observation satellites that play into that picture as well. Um, they do, uh, but it, you have to remember. All that satellites can tell you about is the skin of the ocean. So they can tell you that the therm- temperature at the skin of the ocean. They can get, tell you um, the, the roughness of the surface uh, of the ocean, which can let you get at wave height and wind speeds. Um, and, and not all of those, the, the kinds of sensors that can do the winds, for example, um, they're not routinely and regularly in orbit. So uh, on the satellite side of things, really not operation really not as a globe operationalized the set of measurements that we you know we know we need to be monitoring these parameters constantly across the entire global ocean so you know whether we whether countries did it independently or as has been done in the past collaboratively you know c- together we will make sure we've always got something in orbit that can uh, provide these data and when we've 
got a new one going up or we've got one that's aging out. Uh, we won't just go completely willy-nilly design whatever the heck we want. You will, you know, we'll, uh, we'll design and build with uh, proper recognition of how important continuity has become. Because, you know, continuity, doing something a second and third time is not what the a creative engineer or creative mm-hmm. scientist typically wants to do. You know, the, the, the premium, the prestige, the fetish is on innovating. It's on doing the new. It's on coming up with something else. Uh, build another one of those. We need to continue to measure this stuff. Is sort of, you know, the junior varsity players should go do that. I mean, the cool kids want to do the new stuff. And, and you, you know, we, we somehow have to find our way around that mental block as, as well and give proper resource and proper standing to those who sustain uh, the critical data flows. To keep having the operational fleet, to keep having the operational yeah, fleet su- going su- and doing its but, job, of you know, course. Sus- sustainment of critical things is just... We, it's got to be given as proper respect in, in both professional standing uh, and in funding. You used to be the administrator for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And of course, a lot of that, I assume, comes from your experience there. And I was wondering uh, if during those times, what things you found worrying, what things you Im- improve. Uh, what 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 you found encouraging after your tenure there? The novelty versus uh, operational sustainment was certainly something we had to work with a lot, both uh, in the sort of partnership with NASA uh, that you know, the United States runs. There is a partnership between NASA and NOAA in the United States that recognizes that we've got a premier satellite design and a construction shop in NASA, and there's no need to build two or three of them. So an agency like NOAA that is critically dependent on uh, satellites, weather satellites in particular that measure uh, the atmospheric parameters, um, we're not going to do it ourselves, and it's you know, NASA's the right partner. But that still gets into this tension of, you know, it is NASA's DNA is go do the next new thing. Uh, and even, even within NASA, the you get a little bit of the second-class citizen effect that the the folks that work on the NOAA satellites are sort of oh god just do another one of them why don't I get to do the new thing? Um, it's a little it's got a little bit of that tinge to it, and from a congressional and funding point of view, uh, you know NASA does the shiny new toy cool stuff that gets great press and you know cool visuals and. And Noah seems kind of like paying the electric bill. I mean, do I have to still keep paying that? I do. Yeah. It's getting a little. Can't can't that? Isn't there some other way? It doesn't NASA already do that? So we're continually having to work around uh, keeping. But it's important to tell the people that Noah is the one that warns you about the next yeah. hurricane. Well, our friends at NASA uh, don't always help because they love to fly into hurricanes too, and they've got a they actually have a PR budget. Uh, it's called Education and Outreach. But they're, they are more skilled, more adroit, uh, and sassier uh, about getting out in front of uh, the cameras. And, you know, I think what NASA defends against and worries about is uh, they, they, want, they want their guys that are researching hurricanes or the next sensor that might help on hurricanes, they want those guys uh, to be explaining to the public uh, why why should you fund me to stay curious about hurricanes? You know, someone would say, well, doesn't Noah do hurricanes? Why why am I why am I paying you to do hurricanes too? So the NASA guys have an incentive 
to show to the Congress and the public, we're doing this for a meaningful reason. This work, this work is helping keep you safe from hurricanes. They don't say this work is helping NOAA protect you from hurricanes. They just say we're helping save you from hurricanes. So <laughs> we, we have a lot of, lot of right. sometimes amusing and sometimes a little edgy discussions about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was that what did you ever do you ever look over to the european um efforts the things like the copernicus i'm thinking and things like that and 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 see similar parallels happening there or or or, or, or want to work with with those with the scientists over in europe or or, or other agencies yeah I, that happens all the time i mean it's it's probably the most uh, developed and refined in the weather arena uh but you know to, to make for any country on this planet to make a decent weather forecast, you you need billions of satellite measurements. That's basically the fundamental raw material. So many that really no nation, you, you, you no nation singly is going to be able to or is going to want to field that whole flotilla of satellites. So for decades now, the 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 two different times of day that you get satellite measurements over the Earth. One has been provided by European satellites and one by American satellites. And there's close coordination, uh, not giving each other orders, but close coordination about what parameters need to be measured at what resolution and capability and so on and so forth. And then, then there's, on top of that, I think just uh, the right amount, a healthy amount of pride and competition that keeps each side wanting to move forward. Uh, but, but, mindful of moving forward just enough to make an improvement and bring everybody with us, not, you know, strike off on your own. So there's a long pattern there. Uh, and also at the operational weather service levels, there's uh, a world body, the World Meteorological Organization that for something close to 150 years now has brought all the world uh, weather authorities together to align on what are the standards, what what are the proper levels of calibration, what's the accuracy and precision we need, what's the reporting format so any meteorologist anywhere on the globe can read any meteorological record from anywhere on the globe, uh, all of that sort of stuff. So it is truly a global cooperative enterprise that makes today's weather forecasting possible. Um, so look, got some of that also on the oceanographic side, uh, exchanges of scientists to support each other on ships or swapping instrument here or there. But again, the, the, the data management uh, part of it is not anywhere near where the World Meteorological Organization is. So with, with all that in mind, I mean, it's, it's obviously, we're, we're in a, a highly sophisticated scientific age in a way you know we all these people relying on weather reports and stuff like that so with with education and stem education in particular where do you think that needs to go in the future and do you think that we've been doing a good job so far or should we be really doing a better job to try and get the scientific literacy of of everyone up to understand just how sophisticated scientifically we've we've actually become yeah um I think we fundamentally need to do a better job on a, on several levels, certainly here in the States. Um, yeah, the overall scientific competency and, and literacy, yeah, we seem to, over here at any rate, the prevailing mindset seems to be what I term a consumer mindset. I'll, I'll get good at it if I plan to use it. Uh, and otherwise, I'm just consuming it. And, you know, that... That can work to a degree, but it certainly sets you up for 
you know, a lot, it sets you up for what I think we're seeing nowadays, a, a crisis of confidence and of disbelief and skepticism about science because fewer and fewer people have any sense of how the data or information that science offers has been developed. So it's, you know, it's dead easy to say, well, that's just a personal opinion. I have, you know, my theory is, and mine seems as good as his is. And um, so I, I, I worry about that. I also worry about, um, about producing the talent that will not only sustain the current level of scientific capacity that society relies on, but continue to advance it. I mean, if it's, if so much of our population is, you know, happy to treat science like they treat their iPhone, I don't need to know how it works. I just, you know, want it in my hand and I want it to do what I want it to do for me. Um, you know, I worry, I worry about having enough people that are, curious about what's next that are the tinkerers that figure out how things work that that will keep a hunger or a drive to improving and tweaking and inventing and creating that take that pride in the figuring out how not just in the having it available to me um i mean i think you know it's one of the things that has concerned me about the sort of macro shift from a production and manufacturing economy to a services economy is, you know, that's, I, that services economy are people using tools to help people do things, but who's creating those tools? Who really understands what's under the hood? Who's, how do you develop trust and confidence to rely on those tools on that financial model or that weather model or that hurricane model? Um, Cause if, you know, all models are wrong, but some models are useful is one of the fundamental rules of, of scientific modeling. Another one is my model is really pretty good and yours is a black, bo- black box I don't trust because I don't know what's inside it. But I don't like the answer that came out of it. So either either you jiggled the data or you jiggled the knobs uh, and one way or another, I'm going to convince myself that your answer is not one I need to pay attention to because it's an uncomfortable answer. Yeah. And I, I mean, I mean you, you could trace that all the way back down to flat earthism <laughs> yeah one one question that i'd personally like to ask really is you've, you've you've had this really stellar career and and i'm not it's it's like what is it that you can do to what advice would you have for younger people that want to to follow in the footsteps of someone like you without being intimate i mean because because it's quite intimidating in some ways <laughs> your level of achievements how, how do you how do you how do you inspire people and say it look that you can do this. What 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 would your advice be? Um, well, I you know I started at the same place that that young person is, uh, without uh, a clear vision, without a big game plan, without you know money or family connections that were going to help make it happen. Uh, with my own set of hopes, but also my own set of you know doubts or wonders of can I do this? Will will it really work? So you know that is where everyone starts. Uh, and you start, you don't start with the big thing. You start at smaller scales. So might be look to sports as a place that you can dive into to teach you lessons about practice, about discipline, about dealing with setbacks, about working on a team. Um, you, those lessons will carry you forward and help a lot. I, you know, I was always involved in sports. Um, I can look back to weekend fishing trips with my dad and my brother that were my first baby steps in learning how to plan expeditions. Uh, and it's, you know, a lot of it was down to my parents who were very good 
uh, help letting both my brother and I genuinely feel like participants, co-decision makers, co-participants, co-explorers. So, you know, we learned by doing alongside of them. They had guardrails up. They weren't going to let us screw something up too bad. But they did that in a way that let us feel competent and let us feel a responsibility and let us learn to gain some confidence in the, our abilities. So I, I think of it as laying a brick sidewalk. You just carefully lay each brick that you can, uh, an academic brick, an experienced brick, uh, and you know, keep checking generally the direction you think you want to go. Uh, and you know, at some point you'll stand up and turn around and you'll be astonished at how long your sidewalk has become. But it's going to look like one brick at a time. A bit of a science fiction question. Um, if if I could tell you uh, that I could take you in a, on a on a crude submarine mission to Europa or Enceladus, would you go? Uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I, I probably would. And if you're telling me you've got a geological field trip to the volcanoes of Mars, I'm definitely in. Oh, yeah, there we go. I, I joined that one too. Uh, um, submarines, I'm a little bit scared. Uh, you mentioned uh, role models when you were growing up. Um, and I was wondering who, which one of those were your personal heroes and if you could go on an expedition today and bring any of them from the past to come with you, who would you choose? You know, I was... I, I never really had a hero above all heroes. I was sort of, you know, this idolatry kind of thing is not my gig. Um, there was something I admired, some little insight or glimmer I took from many, many, many people. I, and some I took from people I only ever just read about that I didn't meet or watch on television. I think, so my conclusion about mentors is a little different. It's not you have to have one. It's they're all around you. They're the people that are right around you right now. They're there for you to you know, pay some attention to, watch how they handle themselves, watch how they lead, watch, you know, watch how they get things done. Um, and sometimes watch ones, note the ones that you don't like. Sort of, I will never behave like that, or I will never, I don't ever want to treat someone like that. You know, take all those lessons or write them down on your little mental list. Uh, every one of those is a mentoring, mentoring moment. It's just not labeled that. It doesn't come with an appointment. Along the way, you probably bump into people, sometimes your age or a little older and sometimes a little younger, uh, that you come into longer conversation with. And you can, you know, they'll listen to you and, and let you and be a sounding board for you and sometimes offer you some advice. Those are all I had. Tons of those. I mean, the professor that I marched up to uh, that day in my freshman year is probably really the first of that kind of a mentor. So it, mentorship was just not such a thing uh, when I was growing up, or, or maybe just not such a thing for girls. Uh, but uh, so I, I encourage people to go at it another way. You, you may not have that person's business card and private phone number, and they may not be the person that's listening to your your big crisis of confidence moment but you pay attention there's people around you that are a walking lesson for you all the time don't let those go by don't let those be wasted that's yeah that's 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 really excellent advice well i've got one final question and we'll, we'll let you go <laughs> let you go um uh, it's it's about space songs we we ask this to all our our, our uh, guests is to is to get a song onto our space 
uh, playlist. Now, I, n- I know that you have things like wake up calls on space shuttle missions, but is there a space song that is there a song that you intrinsically uh, relate to exploration or space or, or a favorite that you'd like us to stick on our space playlist? Um, it's not going to sound very spacey to you, <laughs> but uh, it's the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young Southern Cross. Oh yeah, that is spacey. Uh, I love that song. <laughs> well, it, it is a bit, but yeah. um, you know what? What I always liked about it is, uh, you know, when you're orbiting the Earth uh, every ninety minutes, uh, even even at a low inclination orbit, like was common out of the Kennedy Space Center, um, you know, human most human beings don't get to see both northern and southern hemisphere constellations. At the same time, you know, you usually have to get in an airplane and fly for many, many hours to see some of the other opposite hemispheres constellations. Uh, but you know, on a space flight, you could one part of the orbit be seeing, you know, Orion and the the Big Dipper and the the North Star, and and a couple orbits later, when you're over the, your nighttime passes or over a different part of the Earth, you're seeing the Southern Cross and a bunch of the Southern constellations. That was, you know, to see the Southern Cross for the first time from a spacecraft was pretty fun. Amazing. Yeah, well, that's a perfect song for it. <laughs> Absolutely. But I do, I did just day before yesterday, in fact, um, the guy that did those satirical wake up songs for me found his original DAT tapes, got them all remastered, and sent me uh, wave files of all of them. So if you go to my webpage, kathysullivanastronaut.com, uh, you'll find Wake Up Like an Astronaut, and all of them are on there. They're not. They're not downloadable. They're just listenable. But there's some, there's some real gems. Oh, brilliant! I think wow. my my sentimental favorite of the ones he did was uh, "Stay," "Stay" just a little bit longer, uh, but completely done to be spoken from the point of view of a crew that doesn't want to come home. Uh, and then uh, the Beatles, "Do You Want to Know a Secret," written to uh, be apropos of a Defense Department classified flight. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's brilliant well well that, that's the we've got a double bonus there well th- yeah. we definitely need to add that to the notes absolutely yes. yeah yeah that's, oh yeah that's really great thank th- well thank you very much i mean it's it's so fascinating to talk to someone that's 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 been so in, in you know had the opportunity to see space and get to know the earth so well as well i that's really amazing well guinness guinness are working on three records that they uh, are going to certify probably going to take them a couple more weeks yet so everything is still on the qt uh but one this is my wording not theirs but one is going to be most vertical person in the world uh one is going to be first person to walk in space i think they're going to say walk in space not fly in space um and reach the deepest point on the earth and the third one is going to be the first woman to challenge her deep. That's 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 a good set of records. Did you did you ever set yeah. out to do those records, or were they just never? There's just fact, something that came along. We we were aboard ship when we're we're still out at sea. I've done my dive, uh, and there's another gal aboard ship who was also a guest diver. She's a uh, she's completed the Explorer's Grand Slam of all seven summits and skiing over both poles. She was completely and keenly attuned to the record side of things. And uh, I think we were just, there was a conversation among several of us in the expedition manager's office 
one of those days. And she's, you know, mentally going through all the different ways that what she's done now in Mariana's Trench could become another record and mentioning the Guinness people by name and sort of going through, no, they wouldn't look at that one because of the, and I'm just listening to this whole thing like that. Who even knows this stuff? I mean, I, I had no, Viscovo connected me to the Guinness guys. I would not even have known how to begin or where to begin. And I probably wouldn't have bothered to begin, frankly. It's just, I didn't, I didn't do it. It's amusing to have the records, but no, I, I never did any of this for the records. I did it. I did it for the doing of it. And I did it for the value that I believe these, the things I've done uh, have for humanity and for my country. The records come as a bonus. Absolutely, Fantastic. pennies from heaven. Well, that, I think that's a that's a brilliant that's a brilliant place to end this. So, uh, thank you very much, Kathy. My pleasure. Good talking to you, Julio. Take care. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive. Wow, I'm still, I'm still somewhat in awe about that whole thing. Where can people find us? Go. Well, you see, this time I won't even look at it. <laughs> It's www.interplanetary.org.uk. Yes, or you can go, if, you, if you're feeling generous, to uh, patreon.com forward slash interplanetary. And either of those places will take you out to our Twitter, our Instagram, and all those kind of crazy places if you're so interested. Every single show co comes with show notes, lots of in, new extra info and a few photos. So always worth going and have a quick check of that. So... This has been a very long podcast, Julio, so I think we should let the spodcats go. But if, I sure hope you managed to cut it down to something yeah, reasonable. Yeah, there was a lot of... We even we even had time for a mid-podcast a mid omelette. That's how long this has taken us to record, so it's, it's, it's good. <laughs> thank, thank, thanks, Julio. Uh, uh, when are we going to have you on next? Well, it's always a pleasure. So whenever you need me, I'm, I'm, I'm here. Okay, let's think of uh, some new interviews. Right, that's it. That's it. Bye-bye, Spot Cats. Bye-bye.